This podcast is brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. BankInfoSecurity.com is your source for the news and views shaping security and risk management within the finance space. Cyber attacks are getting more targeted, more sophisticated, and more frequent. And industry experts agree 2011 will be the year that attacks begin trickling down, targeting new areas and smaller organizations that are not well equipped to detect, fight, and prevent emerging fraud threats. Globalization also is playing a role, as cyber attacks launched by overseas cyber thieves and crime rings are targeting more U.S. businesses and consumers. How will smaller U.S. businesses and organizations react? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Tom Osterwich, the Chief Privacy Officer for ID Analytics. Tom, it's no secret that cyber attacks are improving. What are you seeing, especially from a global perspective? And what are you seeing industries do to fight back? And which ones are getting hit the hardest, especially as we look over the course of the next 12 months? Tracy, a great question, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, A couple observations. One is that we are seeing over time the increasing sophistication of fraudsters and the increasing capabilities and in fact the, um, the increasing prevalence of organized fraud rings which are not only operating offline but they're operating online as well and um, often they have the structure of uh, almost modern corporations where they'll have management they'll have uh, folks in different parts of the organization with varied tasks such as one part of the organization might be collecting data, another part might be providing that data to somebody who can then obtain illicit goods with it. So we're seeing incredibly increasing sophistication of fraudsters. Um, the, the other point I would make is that uh, with the Internet, there is an increasing globalization of fraud, and there is the capability of overseas fraud rings to uh, apply their trade to the United States. And for folks with sophisticated technical skills, it's an attractive financial option overseas, especially in some countries. And, Tom, when we take a step back and and we look at the industries and maybe some of these smaller entities that are being targeted, of course, everyone is connected to the online channel regardless of where they're located. Are there any that stand out? Financial industries have traditionally been targeted. Uh, The old adage is is fraud goes where the money is, and obviously the financial services industry provides uh, numerous avenues for access to cash. For example, credit cards are obviously a very highly desirable target for thieves, because that can be quickly converted into a variety of goods. Uh, telecommunication industry has been targeted for a significant period of time. Retail credit card issuers and retailers. So one thing I, I would note is that people may target industries for different purposes. Information that you procure in a wide variety of organizations can be used ultimately to pursue fraud elsewhere. So if I, I steal information from a healthcare clinic or from a mom-and-pop grocery store, that information can be used elsewhere. So to some degree, the targets are widespread and fraudsters generally go where the least effective defenses are. And you've noted that fraud detection, especially in the online space, is often siloed, which limits its ability, of course, to detect fraud across numerous channels, platforms, and sources. Can you explain? In, in my opinion, uh, fraud detection in the online space, uh, in terms of its global uh, response to the problem is still a little bit where perhaps the financial services industry was five to ten years ago. There's a very much of a siloed approach to the problem. For example, an organization might have uh, a mechanism to check IP addresses, uh, but of course IP addresses can be uh, covered or spoofed or hidden in much the same way that somebody can spoof a caller ID. Uh, people might also have a device ID check, but of course people can use public computers to um, also 
avoid that. So, so one of the challenges is, is how do you integrate these various silos of information to get a comprehensive view of risk? And one, one of the things I would point out is that, especially in the financial services industry, we've been focusing on risk-based uh, responses and global responses to identity fraud for quite a while. Now, one thing I've noted from some of the other interviews that you've conducted is IP geolocation. And I don't know that everyone in our audience is familiar with what that is. Can you give us a little background? Sure. Um, one of the, the challenges uh, for an organization um, in verifying somebody's identity is that you can present basic identity information like name, address, phone number from anywhere in the world. The question is, are you actually there? So if somebody's claiming that they're John Smith from New York, New York, but they're actually applying from Estonia, that information is highly informative in terms of evaluating the likelihood that that person is who they say they are. So what IP geolocation does is it uh, links an individual to a specific part of the world based on uh, underlying information in their IP address. And gathering that type of information, could some of that be done manually, or does this require some kind of automated solution? There are a variety of providers out there that provide IP geolocation services. And so this would be something that a smaller entity, such as a family practice or a smaller community bank, might be able to do without a lot of expense? Uh, um, most certainly. But, but I guess what I would caution is that when people are thinking about uh, their approach, they need to focus, whether you're large or small, on a holistic approach to fraud. And by that, I mean to, to look at the multiple channels. Fraudsters do take time to evaluate the defenses of the organizations they're targeting. And one of the things that we've seen at a high level is that overall fraud is plateauing for the bigger customers. And what that reflects to some degree is that some of the larger institutions in many fields aren't putting up sophisticated defenses. And this is probably due to new regulations, whether it's the USA Patriot Act or because of the red flag rules. But bottom line, financial institutions are and other leading industries are getting more sophisticated, and the threat is that fraudsters are going to migrate to areas where there's less defenses, which are smaller institutions. Now, getting this broader look at ID is critical, you've noted, but for smaller entities, as we've talked about, such as community banks or even a family medical practice, obtaining the software and management tools that provide that level of detailed analytics might be considered unreasonable. But unfortunately, as you've noted, fraudsters are, are targeting a lot of these smaller entities. What do you think they can do to fight back? Should they partner with a third party? There are technologies out there today that allow organizations to get um, online risk evaluation or identity scores at a relatively uh, low price. They're provided by a variety of providers. So I, I think organizations should, should look at some of the same solutions that larger organizations are using. The challenge, obviously, is to find as you pointed out, an integration point. Um, the, the other thing I would say is there are simple, practical things that organizations should do. And one, one of the, the big things that I, I find surprising is, going back to the silo concept, of how information um, that's used to verify people is being siloed. And IDLX recently did a survey on social networking practices of consumers. And what we found was that about 24% of Americans who are using social networks have public profiles. And the type of information they're putting on these public profiles is exactly the type of information that organizations might use to validate people online. So if you're a small organization and you have challenge questions for consumers when they sign on, like you're asking them, you know, what is their favorite book or what was their birth date or what is their mother's maiden name, you really need to think about those questions because those are the types of questions that are also being provided by consumers in the online space. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Now, when we look at, at online fraud, I'm going to get back to one of the, the things that you specialize in, um, and that, of, of course, is identity theft. And online fraud, phishing attacks, and many of the other attacks that are perpetrated ultimately are trying to steal identities. How can smaller businesses ensure that they're adequately protecting consumers' identities where the security of electronic records is concerned? Well, well there's, I would say there's two different issues. One issue is security, and the other issue is how you handle information and collect information. I, I would point to the guidelines of the FTC and the red flag rules, um, which essentially argue that if you're a creditor especially, you need to develop a program that can both identify fraud risk issues within your organization, detect them, have a, a mechanism to mitigate them, and then update them over time. Now, with a small organization, there are some advantages. If you're a small organization, it's quite possible that you're more familiar with your customer base, that you might have traditional customers. So some of the more complex challenges that organizations have when they're uh, identity-proofing or verifying people who they've never met before are less of a challenge in the small organization space because your clientele might be more favorable. So there are some advantages to being a small organization in that you might have a better knowledge and more personal and immediate direct knowledge of your customer base. And then what about the cross-border nature of this fraud? How can the industry fight back and prevent it when a lot of this is being perpetrated overseas? That is an absolutely incredibly good question. One thing we know is that our, our national government is working with partners overseas to knock down fraud rings, whether it's the Postal Inspection Service, whether it's the FTC whether it's other organizations, but it is an ongoing challenge. And there are examples of uh, overseas organizations using mules in the United States, which are individuals who essentially often unknowingly help them in their process where they'll collect goods for the fraudulent organizations domestically and then ship them overseas. So it is a growing and increasing challenge. And when it comes to helping to fight back, when it comes to phishing attacks or any type of fraud, really, what role should local businesses play when it comes to communicating with local law enforcement? And Tom, do you feel that local law enforcement is really well equipped to track cyber attacks and then adequately communicate some of the information they collect with regional and national law enforcement agencies? Well, historically, identity fraud has been a, a significant challenge for law enforcement, both from the uh, identification of the perpetrators as well as the prosecution of the crime. From the perspective of identifying the perpetrators, often the victims and the perpetrators are in different jurisdictions, which raises challenges. From the perspective of prosecuting the crime, often these crimes are below the threshold limits of local U.S. attorney's offices. So um, in some jurisdictions, a U.S. attorney's office might have a $50,000 threshold on prosecuting a case, but a number of the, the, the victims are falling the $2,000 to $3,000 category. There have been Several years ago, there was an, an act passed called the Identity Theft, Assumption, and Deterrence Act, which created enhanced penalties for fraud victims, but it, it still remains a, tr a challenge. And um, in my best recollection, the Department of Justice and um, state law enforcement have tried to create regional strike forces to respond to this problem. One thing I will say is that often it is helpful um, to file police reports and to work with law enforcement because by doing that, you can actually help law enforcement identify a collection of attacks which in rings, which then could be prosecuted um, with appropriate resources. So I, I would definitely recommend uh, continuing to work with law enforcement. They're getting better. Yeah, and I've, I've talked to a couple of banks in the past, and they've noted that their customers did not file police reports, and that actually made investigations a little bit more challenging. So that's definitely good advice. 
And before we close, Tom, could you share with our audience some of the top threats and challenges you see facing smaller financial, healthcare, and government entities in the coming year? A couple things. First, I would say that uh, the good news is that fraud is plateauing, you know, overall from what we see in identity fraud. Now, the risk, of course, is, as you pointed out, for small organizations, as fraudsters go to where there's less sophisticated, perhaps, technologies. The other thing we're seeing from a fraud perspective is the economic changes that have gone on recently. Uh, first of all, we're seeing less and hearing less about first-party fraud. First-party fraud is when an individual manipulates their own identity elements to perpetuate fraud. An example might be that perhaps you can't afford your utility bills, and so you manipulate your identity information so you can uh, sign on to your utility service and because of a blacklist. So that, because of the improving of the economy, we've seen less and less of that. Secondly, because of still tight credit, relatively tight credit conditions, there's a demand to better manage the verification of good customers, which means that fraud doesn't operate by itself. You have to look at fraud within the context of how you treat your customer. If you had a 100-step fraud prevention technique and you analyzed the personal biography of every applicant, you probably could cut down fraud to almost zero, but you'd also have no customers. And so the key is, how do you analyze fraud and protect your customers from fraud by allowing them to do the services and procure the services that they want to procure? So, for example, if you're signing onto a, um, a website, or you're signing to your online bank account, you want to create a strategy which allows them to get on in as seamless way as possible and only put up barriers where there are specific activities and minimize the burdens for legitimate consumers. So, essentially what this means is you want to minimize the false positives of people who are legitimate being identified as fraud and have to go through extra hoops, and you also want to minimize the false negatives, which are bad guys getting through. It is really important to improve and focus on using fraud effectively to manage your good customers. And uh, the last point I, I made, and I discussed it briefly earlier, was the fact that in a variety of ways, especially in the online space, there's this issue of siloing. It, it comes from the social networking space where verification procedures that institutions are using may not recognize the information that consumers are disclosing elsewhere in their life. And we have to make sure we integrate those. So we need to really make sure that our fraud detection systems are recognizing what's going out there on out there in the social networking space. And additionally, that especially in the online space, we need a more global perspective of risk. Tom, I'd like to thank you again for your time today. My pleasure. It's a pleasure talking. Again, we've just heard from Tom Osterwich of ID Analytics. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitt. This podcast has been brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.BankInfoSecurity.com.